Hello and welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is your host, James Kent, and with me, as always, everyone's favorite time variant, Teal. How's it going there, buddy? <laughs> and maybe not as always uh, the last <laughs> the last couple of weeks here. But Well, you've been very busy, so, you know, I get fill-ins. Uh, Bill from Queens fills in more than he'd like to, <laughs> that's, that's for sure. I know, but you're busy. You're getting ready to move somewhere. I'm, I'm in the middle of a move, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we so this could be, well, we're going to try to tape another episode, I think, at least before you go, but then there's going to be an X amount of period of time where you've disappeared, you're going to yeah. set up shop, and then you'll come back. And then I'll come back, exactly. Yeah, so I may have to fill in with more people. So more people Bill there from Queens. Yeah, Bill. Bill's Bill's pretty taxed. He's he's busy because <laughs> the school that he works for, they he's like also the sports programmer. And, oh, uh, okay. And they're going to be they're back to you know regular sports. They're back this to sports. Year, so, yeah, yeah. So he's got stuff to do all summer long. But anyways, um, that's not what we're going to talk about. We're not going to talk about Bill from Queens. <laughs> He'll listen in, and and you know we love you, Bill. But uh, one of the things that you've heard me talk about on the show many 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 times is my love of, you know, everybody has a theater. I think if you're a movie person, there's always that one theater that you really, really like. Maybe it's from their childhood and it's just, it's a thing for them. And for me, as you've heard all uh, on this show many times, is the Somerville Theater in uh, Somerville Davis Square in Massachusetts. Uh, Some place that I've been going since I was a teenager. Uh, the first time I ever went there was uh, before I was 15. My mom took me to a weird double feature of The Man Who Fell to Earth and Eraserhead. Uh, she was always into cult movies and so was I. And so she'd heard all about Racerhead and we went there. And I think that really started my love of the Somerville Theater. And I spent way too much time there in my teenage years and then uh, through adulthood as well. I don't live in Massachusetts anymore, but as as, as you listeners know, uh, I try to get back to Massachusetts to my, see my family. And uh, quite often it coincides with a, a ulterior motive. And it's usually to get a chance to go to Somerville and catch some cool screening that they're doing. And uh, lately, for the last few years, usually my visits are timed with them doing some kind of 70 millimeter. Everybody on the show knows how much I love 70 millimeter film and that the Somerville were just fortunate enough that I live in an area where we got somebody that's showing 70 millimeter films. Um, So I've been to the Somerville quite a lot over the years as they've done these screenings. Um, And then... I feel like the fall of 19, they did uh, 70mm Film Fest, and I got to see a couple of films there. And then, of course, the pandemic happened, and so I haven't been back uh, since. I was looking forward. As a matter of fact, some of you uh, longtime listeners would remember that it was like just as the pandemic was starting, I did an episode where I was talking about all the cool movies that Somerville was going to be showing at their uh, spring 2020 70 millimeter film fest. And I was like so excited because a bucket list uh, movie for me to see in the theaters was uh, Streets of Fire. And they were going to show a 70 millimeter film print of that. And uh, I was really crushed that uh, that didn't happen uh, because of the pandemic. And, you know, I kind of had to wait and see. I think as a lot of people is like, what's going to happen 
with this pandemic, some of these theaters, especially these independents, are they going to survive? Um, and I really didn't know. I mean, my I mentioned the, the last episode or two that my local movie theater is not coming back. That it's the only theater that's for like 45 miles around in uh, Vermont, and it had eight screens, and it's not coming back. So uh, I'm kind of in uh, tough straits for films. Uh, but I did receive some news a couple of weeks ago. I was reading, or somebody, I guess, somebody in Massachusetts sent me an article and said, did you see this? And it was news that the Somerville Theater was going to be reopening, um, and then they have some changes as well. And I thought it'd be a great opportunity to talk about these changes. And who better to talk about the changes would be the Somerville Theater's manager and creative director, Ian Judge, somebody that I've seen many times. Um, he kind of comes out at uh, the start of a lot of these special movies and he does a little intro on them. And I've, got, I've talked to him a few times. And so he was gracious enough to give me some time today to talk. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Ian Judge. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for that introduction. <laughs> Sorry, it took a while, but again, uh, one thing I always like to tell listeners, what's happening behind the scenes? We've kind of lost Teal. He's having some uh, technical difficulties, so he might join in at some point, and I'll just edit around that. But but because of interest of time, we are going to continue with Ian, um, and hopefully that Teal will be back in at some point. Uh, so, Ian, tell me about changes. I know what some of the changes are, but uh, give me a, give me a rundown of what you guys got cooking. The, the biggest change for the theater, and I want to emphasize that the, the ownership and the management really hasn't changed, uh, but that the biggest change physically is that we are going from a five-screen complex down to a three-screen complex uh, because we are converting two of our cinemas, which are on the second floor, if you've ever been there, back into a ballroom, which is what they were for most of the 20th century. Uh, it was a defunct ballroom, so there's not a lot of people still walking around on the earth who would have attended it. But essentially, we are becoming a little bit more of an art center and a slightly less of a, a cinema. That doesn't mean cinema is not a very important thing or the most important thing to us. It's more just that we've seen the writing on the wall a little bit, and there are going to be less first-run movies. And when they are in theaters, they're not going to be in theaters as long as they were, you know, with the pandemic, a lot have, have has changed in film distribution, things that are way out of our control. And so since we already do a combination of live events with our cinema programming, it seemed like a good time to maybe hedge our bets a bit and take advantage of the closure, first of all, to do a major project. And uh, when we come back, we'll have a little bit more to offer in the live realm live entertainment realm and, and the special event realm, and maybe a little less of the first-run movies. Uh, I don't want them to think, oh, well, they're, they're not going to be showing any of the, the, the classics or the cool, fun stuff that they do, and that is, is certainly not the case. I think it's that'll become even more a part of what we do there because of the commercial film distribution changing. So that is the biggest change. We're also taking the opportunity at this time to uh, redo and rebuild the theater lobby and to kind of make it a bit more functional in how it flows and certainly much more aesthetically pleasing and structurally <laughs> uh, supportive. And we're also installing uh, 4K laser projection in our main house there, 
which uh, has always had terrific film projection, but because of the keystoning of where the projection booth is located, digital cinema has never quite been as sharp as it could in there, so now we'll be able to have uh, digital cinema in 4K that'll look very good uh, to go along with our film programming. So hopefully it makes it a more versatile place. Yeah, I mean, that's quite a reversal, right, from the trends of the 90s where the big houses had to be chopped up into smaller houses is the only way that small independents could survive. And, uh, you know, one of the things that was a little nerve-wracking in the 90s for those who were fans of the Somerville was when you started the project of chopping up and making those four cinemas. At first, it was like, oh, no, they're going to destroy their their beautiful big screen and that auditorium, but you didn't do that. You were actually able to, again, access areas of the building that hadn't been used in years. Um, and as you mentioned, the ballroom. Um, and I thought that you, you were very successful in what you were able to do with those small little uh, theaters. With I always call them the owl theaters because you have those cool little owl lights. But uh, now, of course, as you said, the film industry has changed so dramatically. And then, of course, the pandemic is really, I think it sped up something that the studios have wanted for a long time, right? Which is to get things streaming faster. The so-called theatrical window, which is, you know, between the time it's in theaters and between the time you can get it at home, has always been 90 days or more. And, and they've been salivating over shortening that. And now they've shortened it to zero in some cases, <laughs> but certainly yeah. much shorter than it is. And I think also, but I, I think it's a reflection that consumers' tastes have changed the way they get their movies. I think people who want to have the movie theater experience will still seek it out. But it is a reflection that, you know, how people consume movies is changing. That said, there's nothing like seeing a movie in a movie theater. And I think, you know, you're talking about how in the 90s and certainly before then, a lot of big theaters were chopped up into smaller ones. Well, you think about that kind of ruined the experience in a lot of ways. We went from a very magical big screen experience to a much smaller experience, which can be suitable for certain kinds of movies. But the thing that movie theaters already always had was exclusivity. So even if it was kind of a dumpy multiplex somewhere, it was the only place you could see the movie that you wanted to see maybe. And so now I think the opposite is true. And I think the theaters that are going to make it uh, by and large uh, are going to be the ones that give you that better experience and give you uh, a more magical experience at the movies. And so I think that, that's something that is advantageous to us and to other theaters kind of like us in our area. We certainly benefit from being in a high population area. And, you know, I know you mentioned that you, the local movie theater to you had, had closed. And, and that is a sad truth for a lot of places that the pandemic has just crushed so many small businesses and small organizations. But for us, we are very lucky to be in a densely populated area. I believe Somerville is the most densely populated city in New England you know, to have students nearby and specifically to our theater, just to have ownership that is able was able to kind of hang in there through the pandemic and uh, be recommitted to these businesses, to this theater. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because one of the things I think you were had to fight against for years when you might have wanted to do more like special uh, screenings and things like 70 millimeter film festivals and stuff is you had to fight with the studios. They have movies booked for that big house for such X amount of time. And um, now with those shortened windows, and again, not getting as many of these big releases, you may have a little bit more play there to do specialty things that you couldn't do in the past, perhaps. Yes, I think that's certainly true. I mean, we're still going to hold the big house, you know, opening weekend for Bond and for Dune and things like that. And any time is going to be a 
a Christopher Nolan movie that might come out on 70 or even 35, we'll hold it for that. Same thing with if Tarantino does another picture on film, you know, there are certain things we're going to always keep our eye on for having, but I think by and large, again, the things that define us as, as a better experience than say your local AMC or Regal or whatever it is the chain in your area, it, it are these special events. And it, it's not necessarily that they are the most profitable events, but they are the most memorable events. And so people have a good time there and they have a good experience. And that makes them more likely to go and see the James Bond movie at your theater or to go and see a regular Hollywood release because they just associate your place with kind of being a steward of cinema and, you know, having a nice facility and so forth. It brings in a lot of different people. I mean, we host the Independent Film Festival of Boston every year that there is an apocalypse going on. And one of the best <laughs> things about that is that it brings in so many people from what we say, the other side of the river, the other side of the Charles, you know, from Boston, who maybe they wouldn't ordinarily have never gone to Somerville for a movie because that's not where they live. But then they come out and they see what a vibrant area it is and they like the theater and they, they like you know, the things that we sell, beer and wine and things like that. And so it, it, it it's it's similar to that. It's not that we make a ton of money off of hosting the Independent Film Festival or any other film festival, but it's just kind of part of our mission. And it, it it's, it's almost like an advertisement for us. And so we look upon 70 millimeter and repertory programming and fun things like that as as uh, it's really more of an ad budget than a uh, you know, money maker per se, although some of them do make money. But as you know, a lot of Similar theaters or nonprofit, certainly locally to us, the Brattle and the Coolidge have both had to go nonprofit in order to survive. And it's really just yeah. through mm -hmm. the luck of the draw that we have private ownership that is is quite supportive of the theater. I mean, it's similar in, in, in a smaller way to, they say, the Music Box in Chicago, which is also privately owned, but is a, a spectacular theater, you know, and they do great. Programs. Yeah, I think of that. I think of the comparisons between you and the Music Box, which I've never been to, but I mean, I, I spend a lot of time, maybe too much time focusing on like what's happening in 70 millimeterville. And, uh, and, and Music Box is also one of those places that still has 70 millimeter projectors and does a festival every year. And, you know, again, what, what, I, what I hope listeners, I mean, again, not everybody's in the Somerville or Massachusetts area can get to where you are, but if the, if anybody has not been to the Somerville Theater, what, what I don't think people who've ever experienced anything other than the multiplex understand what it's like to walk into a theater that has two levels to it, where there's a an actual balcony that's huge and massive. And, and what's the, the, the seat counts, like 800 or something in that theater? Uh, yeah, uh, 876. Wow. That's I mean, how many theaters are like that in the country? There's more seats upstairs than there are down because the balcony goes farther back, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny is I used to, when I was a, when I was a teenager, uh, there was a period of time in the mid-80s when the Somerville was showing... They were doing, uh, it was all like retro screenings, right? Like, you know, sure. like revival stuff like Brattle. And one summer they would show like, I don't know, four or five continuous films a day. And I had this buddy and I, we would go, not every day, but we would go uh, oftentimes and we would see all five movies. And by the last couple, we'd get very punchy and we'd make <laughs> our way up to the balcony and we would sit in that very back row. And I mean, the screen was like, so far away and i felt like at times where you would actually like it was almost not in sync because you could hear the sound afterwards because you could see it was so far away um but we I mean, it was just fun we would like you know we, we were mystery science theatering it up before there was a mystery science theater oh sure 
and it was, those were just great times. And it, it's such a trip to be up in that balcony. And uh, I, you know, I've taken my both of my sons, but my oldest one especially has accompanied me many times to the 70 millimeter film fest. He's kind of likes movies and understands what it is to see a movie projected and he knows that a lot of his friends don't get to do you know see that um and he likes yeah. going to the balcony because it's just a different experience up there when was the theater built uh 1914 oh wow okay i'm starting to get a picture of it now started off as vaudeville but it was probably built kind of like at the tail end of vaudeville uh well it was built for vaudeville and movies um but you remember at the time movies were generally what they called two reelers so that was probably about a 20 minute short would be the most you'd see you'd have you know five or six live acts and a short in fact a lot of the not necessarily at somerville but the earlier vaudeville theaters basically put on movies to chase out the audience so they could get <laughs> people in for the next show um and of course the, ta- the tail ended up wagging the dog there but it's a lot cheaper to pay for a movie than it is to hire six different acts <laughs> Ian, you're kind of a rarity because, uh, you know, you're obviously, I, I, I want to guess because I've, I've heard you speak uh, many times at these uh, events that you know, you're a film fan, I think. And I think yes. to continue working in uh, the, the theater industry, you got to be a film fan. But you've been you've been involved in theater management for many, many years. I mean, you started, I don't know if you started, but I remember, especially from talking to you, that you had managed over at the Harvard Square Cinema for many years, right? Uh, Yeah, well, I started at the Harvard Square Theater when I was a teenager, and I worked my way through college there, and uh, I would come down on weekends to work, because I actually went to Keene State, which is a little bit closer to you, and I would the wage disparity was such that it was cheaper when gas was 89 cents a gallon to drive <laughs> to Cambridge and work all weekend than it was to get a job in New Hampshire at the time. And uh, and so I would work all my weekends and summers there. And when I got out of college, I just uh, became a manager and I managed different Lowe's theaters. I helped to open the Lowe's Boston Common when that uh, was built. And uh, and then I left because it was just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like going to a college when you work for a company like that. And I, I was ready to graduate. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> and, um, you know, I didn't know that I would come back to it, but I actually grew up down the street from the Somerville Theater. And so when I was a kid, that was my le- local movie house, even though not necessarily all the programming was geared towards children. I think the first thing I remember seeing there was a Three Stooges festival. <laughs> and, you know. It was if you would ask me when I was ten years old what what my dream job would be, it would absolutely have said, "Oh, I would love to run that movie theater." Now I didn't know <laughs> what that entailed, but uh, and I didn't know I would end up here, you know. So, but I, I have a film degree, and I've I've always enjoyed old movies, and it just came naturally to me that I, I the job became available, and I've been doing it now for nineteen years. And so it's just, it's become my life's work. And and I always joke, you know, it's kind of like at the end of The Shining where you see a picture of Jack Torrance there from a (laughs) hundred years before. I feel like eventually I'm going to come across a photo of myself at the song. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I remember when I was, again, when I was a teenager and I would go up to the balcony, I mean, it wasn't exactly super locked up there. And I know what you're talking about. So I kind of peeked in and could see the ballroom when it was all closed up. And I mean, it felt like something out of The Shining back then. <laughs> it was all, you know, not uh, refurbished <laughs> or anything. <laughs> place, it just, it, that place has so many stories and nooks and crannies. And- oh, no, a lot of dead pigeons up there back then. Ooh. 
I was going to say, so where are we with um, the restoration project that you're under, undertaking? And when when do we expect that uh, the summer will, will be reopened? I mean, I've heard like maybe late summer for the movies and then sometime in the fall for the ballroom. Yeah, that's accurate. I would say early to mid-August for movies. We're very close to being able to open the three screens that remain you know, there's a lot of little finish work to do, but the, the construction is pretty much done. There's just some some minor stuff and we have to put in some carpeting and do some deep cleaning and install the new projector, although that doesn't necessarily prevent us from opening because we can use the old one until the new one is ready. And then the ballroom itself takes a little bit longer. Uh, all the major noisy stuff is pretty much done. The finish work takes forever and the installation of stage fixtures and so forth. So that is anticipated a soft opening end of September, but we're starting to book stuff in there for October. So the movie theater will definitely be open first. The floors are completely, basically, if you recall, those cinemas had slope floors. We built up and over that for the ballroom floor, and that's all been filled in with all sorts of insulation. And any of the common exit halls are being lined with uh, acoustic paneling and extra doors, and I think it's going to be okay. Uh, so far, our tests have proven that everything the engineers have advised us on has panned out. So, oh, uh, you know, I, I feel confident about that. What about that crazy uh, main floor bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> so, the one right off the lobby, which originally was a ladies' room and then was kind of unisex for a while, that has been gutted and that has been turned into a single. Uh, handicap stall with a little mop closet. We would have liked to fit two toilets in there, but it just didn't fit with code. So we have a very nice handicap stall in there now. And um, it, it's all been refloored and retiled. So that was the first time that bathroom had been done over since 1932. As far it, as it, it, it seemed oh, like wow. it. When you go in there, there you want to talk about when you talk about ghosts. <laughs> that place has ghosts in there. The toilets themselves. I was told by our plumber that the toilets were actually from 1914, not the the pipes, wow. but the bowls. So wow! They That's they crazy. did their duty for over a hundred years. You know, no pun intended. So what brought on this all these renovations right now? What was the impetus for that? We bandied about the idea of the ballroom for a few years now because uh, about three, four years ago, we did our basement cinemas over. For those that don't know, we have one main theater and then there were two in the basement and two up on the second floor where this ballroom is. And so we had completely rebuilt them, stripped them down to the studs and new seats, new everything. And so because of budgetary reasons, we didn't do all the theaters at once and right. so we knew we had to do something with those upstairs cinemas which hadn't been touched really since the 90s and so we said well do you think we should do them over as cinemas and if we do we're going to lose seating capacity because modern seats are a little bit bigger than old seats which we lost capacity downstairs which is fine i'd rather have 100 happy customers than 130 unhappy customers but um yeah then the pandemic hit and it was like wow uh what are we going to do here? How long is it going to last? And then it obviously was going to last a lot longer than anybody yeah. thought. And it became, what do we do with these businesses? And I work for the, the Freeman family, the family that owns the, the theater. And they've, they've always been so supportive of me personally, but also of the business over the years. And it was kind of like, well, do we, do we wind it down then? Do we not come back or do we <laughs> try and make it to take it to the next level? And, you know, it's in their blood to, to keep it going. And yeah. they want to keep it going. Yeah, they could easily walk away. Any Anybody would lease that main room. You know, any of the music promoters in Boston would snap a lease on it. And then they keep it dark 
a hundred days a year and probably no movies. And that's just depressing to everybody. So it was like, well, let's do this. Let's take this opportunity. We'll get a construction loan. When we come back, whenever that is, it's going to take that long to build the thing anyway. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Movies aren't going anywhere, but there'll be less of them. So let's let's uh, you know, people always you know, going to want to get married. People are always going to want to hear comedy in person and see music in person. And so let's let's put some of our eggs in that basket. And so that was really the impetus: was what do we do with these rundown two auditoriums? And then whoop, our business model has completely changed. So let's really decide. So that gave you an opportunity, yeah. It did. We made some lemons out of uh, lemonade. <laughs> or lemonade out of lemons. Of course, you know, what was it? I mean, how many years ago now, it's been a couple, that the kind of main music spot in Davis Square, Johnny D's, closed its doors. And so, you know. Maybe 2018, I think, roughly. So, like, I mean, there's a need in that area. And, of course, something nice and, and new that's going to be pretty exciting, I would imagine. Yeah, and I think it is going to be a very beautiful room. It has these these gorgeous windows that overlook the, the square and... I mean, the thing about Johnny D's is that it was the size of a show that's going through there. I think Johnny D's sat just over 300. There's plenty of good music in Somerville and in Davis Square, but of that size, it's tough. Uh, So we figured this would kind of fill that gap a bit. And the other thing is that the pandemic has really kind of squashed a lot of smaller venues. And uh, artists are going to need a place to play. And we wanted to make sure we could take advantage of that and uh, provide them that place. That's exciting. Now, um, let's, uh, well, here's what, I got a question here. Now, will will David be returning, the projectionist? Uh, David Kornfeld, yes. As far as I know, uh, he's supposed to have dinner over at my house uh, next Saturday. So uh-huh. uh, he is returning as far as I know. I mean, he has a lot of uh, his own personal equipment in the theater still yeah. that, that we utilize because David is uh, very good at maintaining equipment. And um, so, yes, I anticipate he will be back. That'd be great. Uh, and, and certainly we probably would not run 70 millimeter. No, I know without him certainly not as well that's for sure yeah and now on i know on that i mean again you you know maybe not have anything lined up yet but i i it sounds like you are planning on doing 70 millimeter in the future and uh you know do you have any plans for when you think you might be able to do a festival (laughs) sure well you know as as you said we had some favorites planned for last may and and some of that took so much legwork to book too (laughs) It was yeah. it was kind of a real, real bummer. I thought it was one of our strongest slates that we had developed since we started the 70 Fest. And then to have it all kind of come crashing down really was difficult. But, I mean, pales in comparison to what a lot of people have personally gone through, obviously. Right. But sure. from a professional standpoint, it was frustrating. So we will be bringing that back next, next May. Um, we haven't gotten into that planning at all because I myself only returned to work very recently. Right. But I think that when we open in August, it's likely that we will probably have a soft opening the week before we play any uh, first run movies. And so it's in all likelihood, I will program 70 millimeter for that week because it'll be something to get people back in the door. And as you might know, we have our own print of 2001, a space odyssey. That's right. So that's, Definitely cool. an option. We'll see what else I can cook up. The <laughs> thing about booking old movies is that the studios don't get back to you quickly. Sure, and um, and I get it. Right, it's, it's not, not a priority. priority it's it's tough to even that seventy millimeter festival in May. We start planning that in December because it it takes two three months to get an answer. Sometimes, particularly if it's Disney or now Fox is part of Disney, that takes forever. 
um, other studios get right back to you. But yeah, and of course now post pandemic, you don't even know what kind of staff these people have. You know, like I mean, it, right. resources oh, yeah. will be shrunk even more. Yeah, and you don't know the person who is your contact might not be there anymore. I know that that was already an issue for us with with Fox being absorbed by Disney. And right. It's it's tough. It's definitely a personal business. It's it's a billion dollar business, but it is such a personal business when you're dealing with studios. Yeah, I mean, I just uh, I just took a trek to this place that's in Pennsylvania. It's a drive-in, the Mahoning Drive-in. Oh, the Mahoning. Oh, yeah, see? Uh, and uh, I'm actually wearing their shirt because I got one when I was there. And, uh, oh, they... yeah, I, love, I tried to go down last uh, last month, but I did a family conflict. But my buddy Mark Nelson, he, uh, he he's a general manager there, and he's an old friend of mine. He's a great guy, and they do a tremendous job. Well, they've got like, I mean, yeah, they've just suddenly got it down, Pat, as far as, as far as being able to book all of these insane movies, they've really, and I feel like they've got a good niche because if I lived there, I think there's something I could see every weekend. Oh, there. absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, it's tough because, you know, there's so many different uh, issues trying to get these 70 millimeter prints. A, do they even exist anymore? Um, if they do, are they, you know, there's that period of time from basically mid 70s to early 80s where everything's going to be pink. Yep. And, yeah. uh, you know, and then, of course, you know, I mean, I've, I can only see so many. I'm, I'm kind of like when you've got one that I haven't seen. And I can yeah. get there. That's when I'm going there. And, and like when you had this uh, thing for last May, which didn't happen, it, it happened that you had Streets of Fire on a weekend. So I was going to be able to go do, to see that. And then I think there was the following week you were doing a, a Tarantino Hateful Eight and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And yeah. uh, I've seen them both in 70 millimeter and they're, they're just fantastic in 70. So the idea that I could see both was going to be uh, great. And my son, he, he's again, he's probably too young to be seeing these movies, but he's still, <laughs> he's still seeing them and he loves them. And he loves the hateful eight, which is fascinating because it's not known as one of people's favorite Tarantino right. movies, but yeah. and here's a kid who th sees things differently and had not seen a lot of Westerns. He thinks it's one of the best movies and he's seen it twice. Once he watched it, on his phone which i'm like horrified and i'm like you've got to see it on the big screen my friend you got to see it in 70 millimeters oh, yeah. so i really hope that i can get him there at some point to see that yeah well we will definitely book that again because first of all we had the number one gross in new england on that picture oh wow. and uh yeah and and we played it for i think eight weeks in 70 millimeter and and our print was in mint condition when it left. We did not do any damage to it. And so we know the uh, person who was in charge of kind of retrieving the prints that were out in circulation from across the country. And I think ours and one other print was the only one not to come back with some kind of damage, huh. something like that. I think they had five usable prints out of a hundred wow. and ours was in the best condition. So that we know that we can get that print back because we took such good care of it. And the once upon a time in Hollywood, it was so difficult to get that movie booked because you actually have to get permission studio gets it from tarantino himself so i was yeah. so disappointed that we you know but i i will bring that back i will because i remember you guys showed it in 35 and i was there at that um was it that you had like a, a thursday night screening i think um, yeah whatever, and i was there and i gotta tell you to, to see that film with 870 people in an audience the energy that you get from 870 people in an audience i mean for people who've never been able to do that teal and i we go we've way back and, and we've yeah. seen you know movies when when we were lived in new york city and we in the zigfield theater and stuff but you know more and oh, more yeah. people just don't get that experience anymore so it's like it was a real treat and i it, that movie stuck with me and 
a couple weeks later, I got an opportunity to go to New York City and see it in 70, and it was even better in 70, and I think yeah. it was more just because he shot it on film, but something about the film stock they've been using for 70 millimeter prints just really lent itself to giving it that kind of throwback look. I hmm. could see that, yeah. And that's why I'm kind of actually intrigued. I don't think you've ever played it. Uh, but Paul Thomas Anderson did a 70 millimeter print of Inherent Vice. I think there's only one print that exists. Yes, and, yeah. We, uh, we tried to get it and we couldn't because <laughs> I think it was in Canada when we tried to get it. I want to see that. I don't know why, why that, what it would look like in 70 millimeter, <laughs> but I got to see it. That's like, a, that's like a bucket list thing for me. I really want to see Inherent Vice in 70 millimeter. There you go. Well, Someday, hopefully. <laughs> as long as someone else doesn't mangle the print. <laughs> I know, that's always scary. And then I know that, like, because I actually attended, like, when David did that little, uh, he did a demonstration and he had, like, a lot of little different clips of 70 Oh, yeah, the stuff. odds and ends, yeah. He showed a clip from Ryan's daughter. And mm. I've only seen that on TV. I've seen it widescreen on TV. But, like, when I saw how how sharp that image is, I, I was like, boy, I'd love to see Ryan's daughter, a 70 millimeter print of that someday. I know, and there aren't any, at least not in this wow. country. I know, uh, unless they're privately held. And and that, yeah, I, I have I've seen that clip that he he used for that, and that it is. It's like looking through a window. It's unbelievable how crisp and clear it is. I'm encouraging any listeners out there. You keep keep an eye out because if you could ever get to one of these 70 millimeter fests and see a movie actually projected in 70 millimeter, and even better if it was shot in 70 millimeter, it, yeah. it just looks so different than a normal movie. It's just hard to describe. I always kind of forget you're, after a you're while. You're obsessed what it looks with like. it though, and I think that's good for our listeners to know <laughs> that <laughs> 70 millimeter can create that kind of obsession and dedication and you you will go way out of your way to see a movie in 70 millimeter i did this is true i've done that well i mean like i said it's like a good three hour drive from yeah. vermont and i mean there was nice <laughs> i remember in one of the festivals you did it was in the middle of the week and you showed remains of the day and yeah. I got uh, I, I got a girl who I know who likes like costume dramas and her and her friend showed up there and I drove that early that night, went and saw it with them and then I turned around and drove home because <laughs> I had to see, I was like Remains of the Days one of my favorites and I had to see it in 70 millimeter. <laughs> That's the thing. It makes that experience more special, right? And you can watch Remains of the Day at home and still enjoy it. Absolutely. But there, it's, it's a different experience. I truly believe your brain processes it in a different way. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, well, I mean, it must be exciting. I mean, first of all, it must have been a scary time for you because this was your livelihood and it may, you know, you're in this pandemic. You don't know whether this place is coming back and stuff. And I mean, yeah. I can only imagine the kind of, Teal and I, we I mean, everybody's had what they had to do during the pandemic yeah. and everybody struggles a little different, but I mean, you know, my wife, she's in healthcare and she was on the front lines of like treating people with the pandemic, but otherwise like job security wise, we were in pretty good shape during this pandemic. Um, but it must've been scary for you. Yeah, it was certainly scary. Um, you know, a lot of anxiety about it and it was more about when, how long is this going to last and will it, and will it go away? Because yeah. You know, as I said, the owners are very supportive, but they don't have endless resources and they're very loyal. But, you know, to, to make a living where I can pay my bills, uh, you know, I'm sure they gladly employ me to sweep up the, the sidewalk around their <laughs> right. property, but that's not a living. And it's certainly not my vocation. So it was it was a very intense time. But I think if you survived it, it truly does make you appreciate what you have more. 
And it also, I think for me, gave me a bit more energy because, you know, taking a break from it is nice in some ways too, from the daily grind of it. I've been doing it since I was a teenager and that's been good. And also for me, when I came back, I'm back as a creative director rather than a general manager. And we, I've made um, my house manager, Peter Matchin, who's terrific guy. He's, been made the general manager so that I can concentrate on creative things. And that's partially because the ballroom is going to require a lot of legwork to get it booked, but also so I can concentrate on things like film festivals and uh, 70 millimeter and repertory bookings, because that, like I say, it takes an awful lot of legwork to book. Even 10 movies can take, you know, a 40 hour work week and you're not even anywhere close. So for me not to have to worry about balancing the needs of 25 employees and, you know, this person and that person with daily grind stuff, coordinating deliveries and all that. I'm very happy to leave that to to someone else and really just concentrate on the fun stuff, to be honest. I have a question. We were talking about James being obsessed with 70 millimeter. He's also <laughs> sure. obsessed with theaters. And I'm just curious, do you, we mentioned a few other theater, the Zig Field, the Music Box, and you said, oh, yeah, yeah. Do you, when you travel, do you like stop in and check out the cool local theaters? Do you? <laughs> if I can, absolutely. I mean, every summer, even we go to a Gunkwit, Maine, my family, and there's a great little old fashioned theater up there, the Levitt. And, okay. um, you know, I, even if it's a, just a small town theater or a big city palace, I love seeing them. And um, I must have it in my blood. My uncle, years and years ago, owned a twin cinema in Westboro, Massachusetts, the uh-huh. Flick one, too. It was it was a very tough way to make a living for him, so he didn't do it for very long. But, you know, I, maybe it's in my blood. And I love going to other cities. I mean, L.A., for example, is one of the best towns to go see movies in period, not just because they make them there, obviously, but yeah. they have so many great theaters. You get, you know, the new Bev and the, the, uh, you know, the Egyptian and mm-hmm. even their first run theaters, you know, obviously now are a little bit different because of pandemic, but the, the, the Cinerama dome or yeah. even the original auditorium of the Chinese theater. I mean, there's just so many great things, the El Capitan. So I love that type of stuff. And uh, even if it's just now a performing arts theater, which a lot of, old movie palaces mm-hmm. are now i appreciate that it was a movie theater yeah and uh, david our projectionist he would not like me to reveal how long he has been working but <laughs> he worked in a lot of those old places in boston and uh so it's great to kind of have that connectivity to the 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 past of our industry you know when he started the people training him were these cigar chomping guys who started out in the silent era hand cranking projectors oh wow so to be part of that lineage is really yeah really enjoyable this podcast has been on for almost three years now, and we, we I've shared so many different stories and my you know, I guess my obsessions over the years. And I'm just so happy that, you know, again, I don't live in Massachusetts anymore, that it's never that far from my heart, and I do get to go back there. But it's just nice to know that there are three very important theaters uh, to the, the Boston movie scene that are still in existence. And, you know, one is the Brattle, um, and then the other is the Coolidge, and then the third is my personal favorite is the Somerville. <laughs> But it, well, it's just because well, I, you know, I mean, I know a lot that. of people love like everybody has their thing they love. Everybody loves you know the Coolidge. They've done a lot of great things, and of course, they've just announced they're get, getting ready to do like a whole film center type of thing. Sure. And the Brattle, the Brattle is just the Brattle, right? It's not you, you go there because you want to see a movie that's in a theater. Brattle is is like a church to me. I mean, yeah. I, I've, I've said it before, uh, but. If I had to do it over, I don't know if I would have paid tuition to go to film school. I think I would have just could have just gone to a movie at the Brattle every day for four years and got a better education. And that's no disrespect to my professors, but 
the brattle is just amazing. Yeah. And the coolidge really, you know, I think the best compliment I've ever received at Somerville, because when I started at Somerville, it was just a second run theater. Yeah. It had left its classic stuff in, in behind. What was when we started doing this special programming was uh, an old timer came up to me and said, you know, this reminds me of the early days at the Coolidge. And I that was a great compliment to me because that's certainly when I went to the Coolidge a bit more, not to disparage them out. I don't mean it that way. But, you know, now they've got a lot of support behind them. And in the old days, it wasn't, you know, and that's kind of how I feel. I don't have a board of directors. I don't have right. donors. I just have a really supportive boss. And, uh, and, 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 you know, I don't have a marketing staff and I don't have this, that, and the other thing. So we've kind of just done it the old fashioned way. So for people to appreciate it and also to say that it's kind of a, a relaxed vibe as well, that plays into it too. Mm-hmm. Each of these three theaters, it has its own vibe and personality. And I think that, yeah. uh, you know, me, I mean, again, you know, I look at everybody, like, looks back at some of their fond times in their lives. And it just happens to me that some of the things that stick very sharply in my brain from my movie experiences, besides the theater that I worked in when I was a kid, I, 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 I grew up in Woburn and I worked at the showcase there, you know, in, in my high school oh, days. Sure. But besides those adventures, you know, it's me and my buddies going to see certain films at the Somerville and just, you know, I mean, again, some of these films that I was introduced to the very first time and really got to appreciate because I maybe saw them uh, when I was a little bit too young on video when I first got a VCR. And then I saw them in the theater and and, and got to examine them a different way, seeing things like Harold and Maude for the first time, you know, projected. Mm. Uh, The first time I got to see Clockwork Orange projected was at the Somerville. Uh, The first time I got to see Dawn of the Dead projected was at the Somerville. (laughs) Uh, The first time I got to see uh, Suspiria, and it was funny, is at the time it felt like an old movie was only nine years old at the time and i and i didn't understand why was this print so vibrant i didn't realize i was watching like an one of the last uh die transfer prints of that oh, era sure. and it was just like you know searing my eyeballs and then uh and then the new memories of the that's last better than i know well that's because david will show sometimes i mean that's what's so cool about your large format film festival sometimes it's not a 70 millimeter film you get but he's able to get this cool technicolor uh print from like the 50s or 60s and those always look the color is just amazing i went a few years when you had uh you showed ben hur and he wasn't able there's no 70 millimeter print in existence anymore ben hur in the united states to, to anybody's knowledge that's just locked away in a vault uh and yeah. so the print that he was able to show is like cobbled together from like several other prints huh. and yeah. a few of the reels were from a technicolor like print and the colors just were amazing yeah it, it really is like no other i mean one of, I, i'll tell you what speaking of going to movie theaters when you're visiting a place. When I was in Los Angeles a few years back, I went to a, a screening at the Billy Wilder Theater in at UCLA and saw Prime Cut, oh, Lee yeah. Marvin, Gene Hackman movie. And that was a, a Technicolor oh, print, yes. an IB Technicolor print. And there's, I don't know if you've seen that picture, but part of the climax takes place in this big field full of sunflowers. You know, and there's nothing like Technicolor yellow. Oh, yeah. It's so mm. amazing. It, like you say, it burns your eyes in the best possible way. Yeah, the solid colors, like even blacks. Blacks never look better than in the Technicolor print. Oh, the blacks, way better. Yeah, oh, yeah. No, that's one of the things that's kind of terrible about digital is they just can't quite get the blacks as dark. You know, uh, they're getting there. They will get there, but not yet. From the times that maybe even recent years that you've been at Somerville, is there any particular like screening or memory that sticks out to you that that you really, really enjoyed from your time at the Somerville? Sure. I mean, I have a, I have a few um, in no particular order. I would say our centennial screening was the most fun for me from, 
professional standpoint, I said, uh, when the day that the theater turned 100, which was May 11th, 2014, we had an IB Technicolor print of The Wizard of Oz with some classic short subjects, and we had six acts of vaudeville and a pit orchestra Whoa. before it. And so that was, to me, like, wow, I'm, uh, this is exactly what this room was built for. All of those things, all of the above. You know, it's funny you mentioned that, because... Uh, it must have been, it, I don't know, if, it was maybe 98. I want to say it's like 98 or something. They did a re-release of The Wizard of Oz. And they they released it in 35. And they were, you know, they had made a big deal of how they had like restored it or whatever. And I went and saw it in 35 and I was like, eh, it's not really good. I thought it was supposed to be something special. So I did research and it was not easy to do research back then when the internet wasn't, you know, as good. <laughs> and they said, yeah. well, you said there's like a, there's a thing, certain uh, theaters, if you see that it, that they're showing a 16 millimeter print, we if you still had a projector, we they had special Technicolor prints made up uh, for that for those 16 millimeter uh, prints, and the oh. the West Newton Cinema was showing it, and so just a week later, I go back and see it, and. My eye, it singed my eyeballs. The, 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 the color, I've never seen anything so intense. So I, the most amazing Technicolor experience I've ever had was seeing a Technicolor print of The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unlike anything else. And again, you want to talk about why, why people don't like the movies as much as they used to. Maybe, well, if, imagine if you're a little kid, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years old, and you're taken to this giant palace, and it's beautiful, and the lights dim, and the curtains open, and then that hits the screen. I mean, that is so different than sitting through 25 minutes of ads right. and then seeing some video game. It's just a different experience. So that's definitely, for me, one of the top moments of my career. I would say I've programmed some really fun double features. I think we had Get Carter and uh, Point Blank. I yes. was there. That was a really fun double feature. That was amazing. So it was interesting about that is the Get Carter was like the last print in known in existence of, in yeah. anywhere. And it didn't look, you know, it wasn't the greatest. It was very thin. Yeah. But, but the... Um, the Point Blank was another IB transfer print, and it oh, looked and that, amazing. That movie has amazing colors, too. Yeah, it, it does. It does. I mean, I, that was, so that was a really fun double feature. We got a beautiful print of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls uh, around the same time, and that is just a real guilty pleasure of mine. It is just such a cheesy, fun movie, um, ridiculous movie. But so that, you know, watching an audience react to that movie is so fun. I mean, yeah. it's, it's the same thing. I'm a late adopter to that movie, and I, it was funny. I think in the fall, we had a podcast episode that uh, Teal wasn't in on, but my uh, this other guy that sometimes shows up on our show, uh, he and I talked about it because I had wanted to see it for years, and I finally was able to catch it. And now it's on the Criterion channel, and I've rewatched it again. This, this movie is amazing, and I would <laughs> love to see it in the theater sometimes. So the next time you happen to get that, I'm, I'm coming down. I got to see it. All right. Well, that's where we got it. We did get our print from Criterion. So although Disney oh. holds the, the, the copy right now, but, but hopefully they, they can still service us through Criterion. But I tell you, the, the, it's fun watching audience, large audiences react to any kind of movie, even something that's shown everywhere like Jaws. You right. know, whenever we would show Jaws, I would stand in the back and, the scene that always scares the bejesus out of everybody is when the guy's head pops out of the boat there when they're underway. And I would just know that scene was coming up and I would stand at the back and I would not look at the screen. I would look at the audience. And oh, it's just to watch, you know, like you say, 400 people downstairs or another five upstairs jump with that or something like the exorcist where you see the audience react to something crazy that is that is why i always say the thing about a movies is that it, it, it's like going to the movies is such a yeah. communal experience and it creates a little community that exists for just yeah. that two hours or whatever it is you know it's like brigadoon it rises from the mist 
Everybody experiences it, and then it goes away. And that's just so much fun. Even you said going to see uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with a crowd. One of the opening screenings of that, I think it was the opening screening, you know, there's a scene where Brad Pitt takes off his shirt while he's up on the roof, yeah. and someone in the back of the audience just yelled out, damn. And I mean, the audience <laughs> up, and it's not, you know, you don't want to be riffing on a, a new, but it was just so perfect because it was what everybody else was thinking. Right. And it, 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 that's, you're not going to get that at home. You, you could have the world's biggest TV at home, and you can stream it all to your heart's content, and you can be sitting there with you and your loved one. It's not the same. It's yeah. just not the same. And I kind of like that about uh, film festivals, too, is that it, you, you were talking about like it's a two-hour community. If you're at a film festival, it, it stretches it out a little bit. You see the same people at different screenings. That can be really enjoyable. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the only negative to any film festival are self-serving questions during Q&A. So other than that, <laughs> film festivals are amazing. <laughs> Now, there's another movie that got short shrift because of the pandemic, and, and I'm talking about its big screen engagements. It was uh, Tenet, right? So, they, I mean, the, obviously, yeah. I don't know whether they had actually gotten a chance to make the 70 millimeter prints yet or something, but that was going to have a big 70 millimeter rollout. Yeah. And is that something that you think that you guys might try to book at some point? Yeah, we will probably bring that in. I know they did make 70 millimeter prints. I know they inquired in with us, and we were like, sorry, still closed pandemic. Right. But, um, but yeah, I, I'm, I anticipate we'll we'll try and book that because it's an easy slot to fill. You know that there are prints, and you know that people can get a chance to see it around here. So, uh, Teal, it's too bad you're well. You're moving. You'll you're never going to get a chance to go. But uh, one of the things that's so great when we do these 70 millimeter things, and I'm not going to go on and on about the fact that that when you can see hear an actual six track mag, how amazing it is. But on certain <laughs> films, like David will come out and he will say, "We're going to turn this one up," and man, that theater just vibrates and rocks in a way that people have never experienced with regular uh, digital sound. It's just, it's just no comparison. It is, it is quite the, quite the sound system. You know, like you say, when you get the occasional, and there are only a handful of prints that have that sound mix. It is a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I remember you guys showed Poltergeist, and I went, and it was not a good print. It, it was, unfortunately, most of it was pink, but uh, the sound was incredible. And uh, when he had cranked that up, I mean, that, that was really why back then um, – studios even released these things in 70 they did a blow up just because they wanted to you know to sell the sound so absolutely that's why there are so many 70 blow-ups in the 80s of all those big 80 movies oh, yeah. because solely for the sound solely for the sound. okay interesting but uh but you know anyways ian this has been a thrill for me to just have you on and to hear that you're coming back and i i think that when i get a chance to go back to to see a screening in the summer theater i i will have a personal feeling like the the light at the end of the tunnel of this pandemic yeah <laughs> trust me when we finally show a movie i'll have the same feeling but it's it's you know it's a pleasure to to talk with you guys and and it's always good to see you at the movies. I mean, uh, I, I tend to forget how far away you come, but it's uh, it speaks volumes that you'll drive that far. And that sometimes our biggest struggle is getting someone two blocks away to get off the couch. But you know, if, if you like it if you like it. Yeah. No, I mean these are, you know those are it's making the new memories and uh, you know just in the last few years now I look at back at the memories and I was like a couple of weeks ago my oldest said to me, "Boy, Dad, I I kind of miss not." getting a chance to go back to Massachusetts and go to some of those screenings. Those were so much fun. That is great. Ian, a, a few minutes ago, you were talking about like the, a kid seeing the wizard of Oz, you know, for the first time kind of in technicolor. Right. And, uh, do you have a memory like that from it? What, what's your, my own childhood? Yeah. 
well, I'll tell you, before I tell you that, it, you just triggered a, a memory I had. The, the first 70 millimeter festival we had, we showed Sleeping Beauty in 70 Oh, it was amazing. And it was amazing for me. It was particularly amazing. And it was such a struggle to get those prints out of Disney. And about, I don't know, whatever the big scene of Maleficent is going bananas and turning into a dragon, about yeah. five rows from the front, this little kid just stood up, started screaming, and ran up the aisle and out the door. And it, I mean, the whole audience on that side just laughed because it was so real, you know? It was too real for him. Uh, so there's the power of cinema right there. My, my earliest memories of movies, the first movie I saw... Uh, was 101 Dalmatians at the uh, Medford Square Cinema, which oh, is yeah. long gone. Um, the front of it's still there, but the theater part's gone. And uh, But I don't really remember too much about that. Um, but one of the earliest memories I have is actually going to see Annie with my uh, family and my aunt and uncle and grandmother and everybody. And, and whatever, I, I would have to look up in the paper to see where it was playing. It was yeah. somewhere downtown, like the 57 or the Beacon Hill or something like that. And we all went out to dinner and then we went to this movie and it was an event, you know, um, not to say that it's necessarily classic cinema, but right. it's an event. And I remember I was only five at the time and two things happened to me. One, when Annie is climbing up the uh, railroad bridge at the end, I stood up and screamed, run, Annie, run, you know, and everybody, shh, 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 you know. And then, but when the, this is says it's for me, pretty, when the lights came up at the end, when the credits started, I burst into tears because it was over, oh. and I was so sad that it was over, you know. And and so that's probably the earliest memory I have of the impact of of movies. Certainly for classic movies, when I was younger, I would go to the the seventy millimeter series that they would have at the Wang Center, which unfortunately can't happen anymore because they ripped out the projectors. But oh man, you know, they I saw Oklahoma there. And I saw My Fair Lady at the Paris Theater on Boylston Street. That was probably 94, I think, was when they re-released that. And and certainly seeing 2001 at the Coolidge or Lawrence of Arabia at the Coolidge back in the late 80s. That was Those were certainly uh, enough to know, let my brain know that this was different, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's fine. I loved going to the multiplex and seeing garbage as much as anybody else. But sure. it definitely made impressions on my brain. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the Annie, and I couldn't, you know, I don't know where you actually saw it and can prove it, but I believe that in Boston they were showing it in 70 millimeter. Um, I know they did in 70 millimeter prints of that, so you probably yeah, saw it. Yeah, we may well have seen it in 70. We may well have. Because yeah. the sound and everything, I mean, for a little kid to have that experience, you don't know why it's so much more intense, you know, but it is. Yeah. Um, and, and that's how I remembered it when I first went to see uh, Empire Strikes Back at the Charles Theater. Oh, sure. And... I didn't understand. I, I saw this thing in the paper. It was sort of like an ad. It's in 70 millimeter. And my uncle didn't really understand what it was either. But all I know is that it was such an intense experience that I was like, I want to see another movie that's playing at the Charles Theater because it's going to be amazing. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, the Charles had the biggest screen in Massachusetts, you know, and David, actually, our projectionist, he worked there during that time. He were, He ran Empire there. And uh, he remembers getting into arguments with the uh, the corporate bigwigs there. I believe it was Sack Cinemas at the time because they were running carbon arcs. And he had it boosted so high, they kept going through carbons fast. And they kept telling him, turn it down, turn it down. He said, no, no, no. <laughs> it looks better this way, you know. But, you know, the, talk about the place to see that. That's an event. You go to see a movie like that. 
Tell me going to see that on a huge screen with a giant crowd, that's way better than standing in line to be one of 10 mid-sized auditoriums. I mean, that, that's just a yeah. totally different experience. Yeah, I mean, know? just, you know, they, the, the last few years when they started doing that whole thing where they, like, turned everybody into, like, these living room chairs and that was going to be the experience. And I know that a lot of the younger kids like that, but, like, I yeah. I want a big auditorium with a big screen. And, you know, again, I, I, I just be fortunate. Yeah, and people, right, Till? Like, you know, I mean, how many times that we go to movies? We we lived in L.A. together for a while, and uh, we'd go out to movies, and still there would be big screens to see. And uh, yeah. I'm very thankful that I had those experiences, and that's why I'm very happy that the Somerville is existing, and that people can go, and when a movie's going to be playing in that big house, they can experience it too. Yeah, for sure. So again. For the listeners out there, this is uh, Ian Judge, and he's the creative director at the Somerville Davis Square Cinema and Theater, and uh, it's going to be open in the fall for shows. I think that's going to be very cool. I've actually seen shows at Somerville before, and if, if I could see a show and not have to sit uh, all like my, my legs all crunched up in, in those balcony seats for, for a, a performance, <laughs> that's that's a good thing. Um, and uh, again, you know, it's uh, the, the best news for me is that the projectors are still there, and David comes back and projects those 70 millimeter movies, and as long as it's something that I want to see that's on a weekend, I, I will be there, but I can't say that I won't be there if I don't, I uh, might draw <laughs> up during the week too because i've done that before i'll try and do my best to put one of your favorites on the weekend yeah yeah so well, if you ever Special get request. big trouble in little china that's a that's a bucket list for me because that was a big move i was like an early adopter of that movie saw it in the theater a couple of times when it came out and then then i thought was shocked years later to find out it be kind of like became a cult hit and i had like briefly dated this girl who was like a huge big trouble in little china fan i was like really and uh <laughs> and they made 70 millimeter prints of this movie and i would i would love to see that oh man and you know that's just i, I don't care what day and what i'm doing i'm so i'll be like sorry i gotta go i gotta see this movie on the 70 millimeter the toughest thing is is uh trying to find out if if that print exists uh in this in you know anymore i mean the studio might not have it I, I i can't remember who distributed that i thought i think it was fox and fox has a ha, or had a really good archive so they might have one believe me you you ever want to know i know what movies played in 70 millimeter i got the list but i just know that most of them don't exist i mean the the, the bucket list of all bucket list and it kills me that it was one of those things where i just wasn't aware but i know now that in the early 90s the coolidge played it in 70 millimeter the no prints exist of it it supposedly was one of the best looking 70 millimeter blow-ups of all time was days of heaven and if they would just oh. If they would just do a new 70 millimeter print of Days of Heaven, <laughs> that would be the one out of all the movies I could ever see in 70 millimeter. That's the one oh, I want to yeah. see. I mean, if I hit the Powerball, I'd be privately financing all sorts of new prints. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I always think I'm like, you know, that's like, I'm like, they could go back and they could find some movies. If you're going to remaster a movie now and like put it, make a 70 millimeter print of it and show it in these like cool places like Somerville that can actually show a movie in 70 millimeter. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You start with the studio when you're looking for a print. Uh, yeah. that Because well, either way, you're going to have to license it through the studio. Who right. Owns it, so you, you start there. And most of them are pretty cool, good if you find a print through an archive or whatever. As long as you pay them and you tell them where you got it, they're 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 fine with you using a print. Uh, yeah, that that's where you start. But you know, a lot of times you'll get it from an archive or you'll get it from you know we've got it from UCLA or uh, places like that or private ownership. Rarely, um, it's tough because a lot of private owners are uh, well rightfully suspicious yeah. that you're going to damage it. Although David oh, yeah. doesn't print prints, but I mean a lot of commercial prints 
absolutely get damaged all the time uh, by notable theaters that shall remain nameless that have definitely ruined new 70 millimeter prints. So it, it's it's a very uh, fussy format, uh, yeah. as David will undoubtedly tell anybody who listens that uh, it, you have to really handle it with kid gloves, literally, because uh, it, it does not forgive even the minor minor mistakes you make. And if you don't maintain your equipment, there's a very notable scratch on a lot of 70 millimeter prints called a JJ scratch because the Century JJ is a kind of 70 millimeter projector. It's a 35 70 millimeter. Huh. And if you don't take if you don't take off a certain wheel that is intended for 35, then the 70 millimeter film will slightly yeah. bump against it, and it creates a very distinctive scratch. And so you can tell if someone ran it on a Century JJ and did not take that appendage off because it it permanently scars the uh, wow. print. Wow! So, uh, so that's you really have to know what you're doing. Does David have an apprentice? He does not. <laughs> he should though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I, every time I've gone to one of those, I always go in going, you know what? I don't know if I'm ever going to get to see a 70 millimeter film again. So I got to enjoy this one. And, you know, that's yeah. like in the early 90s, it, it like disappeared. I remember like uh, mid 90s uh, when uh, Kenneth Branagh did Hamlet, he he actually shot it in 70. Shot and in 70, yeah. They installed special equipment at the Kendall so they could show it in 70. And I was there, man, because I was like, yeah. I don't know if I'm ever going to get a chance to see it again. And then when the master, when, uh, Anderson shot that in 70. I'm like, I bet I will go and see this because I don't know if I'm ever going to get to see it again. And uh, I mean, you never know. And certainly of the older pictures, you know, we've played prints that no longer exist now because they were damaged after they played us and now uh, they're not available. So that's always uh, a risk with an older movie. And with the newer movies, yeah, thank goodness there are some filmmakers still pushing for it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, again, I you know, fun stroll down memory lane, and hopefully it gets listeners excited to know that, you know, movies are going to be back. And uh, as much as, I, I mean, I don't, like I said, I can't see any movies locally anymore until maybe somebody gets and uh, decides to buy that theater. But, uh, yeah, I will be returning to the movies, and I definitely am going to come back to the Somerville and see you guys uh, hopefully this fall. All right, I look forward to it myself. All right. Well, Ian, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for making the time today. Yeah, thank you. The pleasure's all mine. Thank you, guys. All right. And everyone, as you know, it's uh, StuffWe'veSeen.com and also uh, feedback at StuffWe'veSeen.com. And, uh, you know, we shot this one on audio only. No, no video this time, but we will be doing video in the future. But again, thanks to Ian Judge. Much appreciated.